Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm delighted to have with me today Robin Wigglesworth, who is the author of Trillions with a very long subtitle, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. It is probably the most important story in finance uh, and quite incredible, Robin, that you're the first person, I think, to tell it in any detail. It's kind of an update from a lot of us starting in this industry. We're handed a book called Capital Ideas by Peter Bernstein, and there was this almost nascent thing about this index fund and the story kind of ended and I don't think anybody forecast where this would go to how big it would come and it's it's such a long story I wondered maybe the, the quickest way to before we get into the implications of all of this one of the quicker ways to uh, tell the story it's just traced maybe from Wells Fargo through BGI into BlackRock and that kind of evolution from that, that, that I think is the direct line of descent, if you like, that one one could trace, uh, and just you know explain that, and then we'll get into the meat of the subject as to as to what it means and implications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, obviously, when you write a book, you're always desperately hoping for some sort of clean narrative because real life, you know, isn't always that convenient. Uh, but yes, there is a a great thread that goes from Wells Fargo uh, in the sixties. It really starts up until the present day BlackRock. So Wells Fargo hired a, a young man called John Mac McQuown. Uh, he was a, a mechanical engineer, but he was probably one of the first people on Wall Street that actually learned how to code uh, on these hulking old mainframe computers. And he was hired by Wells Fargo to set up an internal think tank to basically think up ways to use computers in finance. Uh, and this was sort of in the mid sixties. That was a fairly novel idea. Not everybody thought that had any future. Um, but you know, he came up with lots of interesting, cool things, such as what eventually became the FICO scores, uh, what eventually became Mastercard. He did some early graft work on that. Uh, but the greatest in my mind is the index fund. So in 1971, Wells Fargo rolled out the very first market portfolio. They didn't call it an index fund. I never found out when that name really took off. Um, but in 1971, they had one up and running. Around a few years later, you had a few others as well. But essentially, Wells Fargo was the early start, and they all sold it to pension plans because ordinary investors they never thought would buy this. Jack Bogle tried later on, and frankly, for the first decade or so, he struggled. But Wells Fargo did this, and they did a good job of selling it to big institutions. The problem was it was still sort of at its core, Wells Fargo Investment Advisors, WIFIA, um, was still more of a think tank than a, a commercial enterprise. So they never really made any money. And eventually, Wells Fargo spun it out. Uh, they sold half of it to, to Nikko in Japan, because indexing was taking off there in the 80s. And then Wifnia, 
or with WFIA Nico, um, got sold to Barclays. Uh, and that was frankly a masterstroke by Barclays. So they merge in theory, um, uh, with Nia, with, um, Barclays Global Investors, um, the Zutter Weld, I think it was Barclays the Zutter Weld, BZW. And, um, you know, frankly, it was a reverse takeover. The, what would, you know, the San Francisco based, uh, Wells Fargo people basically took over, uh, Beeswim and, the rest is history. BGI became an absolute giant when Barclays um, landed in the shit, frankly, in 2008, 2009. It had to sell the crown jewel, which was BGI, and BlackRock swooped for it. At the time, it looked like a pretty punchy deal. Not everybody thought it was a good idea. Asset management acquisitions obviously fraught with disasters. Um, but BlackRock took it over and integrated it and has turned it what was already, frankly, you know, an indexing superpower into an indexing and asset management hyperpower, I'd say today. That is incredibly succinct. Uh, well done. <laughs> the, I just wanted to talk about that transaction because your book deals with the transaction. It, it is a transformative transaction for BlackRock, but done at lightning speed as well. So just let me read a little bit from the book. Uh, so on June 10th, this would be 2009, uh, Fink suddenly found himself with just 24 hours to raise 3 billion US dollars. Uh, that Wednesday, Fink ensconced himself at BlackRock's headquarters, called in a few favours of a lifetime, a call to the Chinese Investment Corporation, the country's sovereign wealth fund, led to a 1 billion commitment within an hour. It worked at 8.20pm in New York on June the 11th, so just over two days later. Uh, BlackRock announced that it struck an agreement to buy BGI from Barclays in a deal valued at the time at $13.5 billion, uh, through a combination of cash in the UK bank, acquiring a 20% stake in, in BlackRock. Uh, amazingly quick, uh, was that the deal of the lifetime? Uh, by far. I mean, it's a transformative. Obviously, for, for BlackRock and, frankly, for, for Barclays, uh, they're not always for the right reasons, but, frankly, for the entire industry. Because I think one of the things that people don't always appreciate was to what extent the street held indexing and passive investing at a bit of an arm's length. Like most of the people that were big in this weren't necessarily insiders, insiders, but BlackRock was, you know, very much anchored in Wall Street and they are a very, very commercial organization. So what was already growing incredibly quickly, organically, BlackRock managed to transform into this this behemoth. Uh, and it was a very dramatic deal. And one of the fun things about writing this book was you know, how many interesting people and how much drama there was, even in the sort of index funds that a lot of people think are sort of almost by design boring. Uh, I mean, $3 billion raised in 24 hours doesn't sound like much to us, maybe in the low rate era over the past 10 years. You know, crypto firms used to raise that pretty quickly. Uh, but in 2009, that was you know, Herculean effort. Um, and yeah, the deal almost collapsed. And frankly, for the first half year, year, many people, even at BlackRock, thought the deal was dumb. They thought the assumptions were far too optimistic and thought, you know, even Fink, I know, was worried that they'd massively overpaid and overstretched in digesting something like this. Uh, so they've the, the managed to do so, I think, it's a fairly unique BlackRock story because, as I mentioned, there aren't many good asset management deals, uh, but has, in turn, because of its success, altered the face of the investment industry. 
Oh, as it happened, and it seems from reading your book, there is a genie in the bottle that explains this, and it's called Aladdin. And I think it's much underestimated in terms of the power of BlackRock. So what can you tell us about Aladdin and how it helps BlackRock do these things successfully when, as you say, the history of these is littered with disaster? Yeah, so it's kind of BlackRock's operating system. Um, I mean, Larry Fink was famously sacked or let go or pushed out of first Boston after his team of bond traders, uh, MBS traders lost, uh, I think it was a hundred million dollars or so uh, in the course of a couple of, a couple of weeks. And after that, you know, he wanted better risk management systems that, you know, what the street had, he didn't feel was up to scratch in a world where, you know, complexity was more important, complexity in general was on the rise. So that was kind of the, you know, BlackRock was started as a bond investing house, but the kind of the bedrock behind that was what became known as Aladdin. So he hired the risk management um, expert that he had at, uh, at First Boston to basically design Aladdin from scratch. It's done on some old Sun, um, sun micro stations at the time and you know it's it's interesting i mean at at blackrock they talk a lot about aladdin as sort of the secret dna and sometimes i feel it's you know is it a sales pitch because they are now commercializing a sell to many asset management firms around the world but it does seem to be a very very good system and i think the integration of BGI into BlackRock, it was successful where Aladdin was an example of this and that many firms, when they acquire somebody, they let them meander on them, on them, on balkanized IT systems, balkanized culture, balkanized HR functions forever. When BlackRock takes over, they take over. They don't joke around like who's buying who. They don't talk about the merger of vehicles. They're buying you and they're taking you over and they are going to make you BlackRock, not the other way around. And I think Aladdin, they just force everyone to move it over. And it's very painful. It's very dramatic. And it's very difficult for, yeah, six to 24 months. But after that, having people in the system works. Because this all sounds a bit anodyne. But then when you get down to some of the characters involved, uh, and many people listening to this will be fans of the show Billions. Mm. Uh, and there is a, an incredible, larger-than-life, entirely fictional character in that called Wags. And yet you think, <laughs> perhaps... There is someone at the center of these transactions who that character might be based on. And I don't know how much you want to say about that or can say about that. But uh, th- th- in this, as I said, this kind of technocratic anodyne world, there is at the middle mm. of it this larger than life character. And uh, it's not the one you think. It's not Mr. Fink. It's it's somebody else. Yes. It's his right-hand man, uh, Rob Capito. I mean, I think when, when I talk about even the anodyne stuff about forcing people to accept this, you know, somebody has to be the force that does that. And at BlackRock, the hatchet man is Rob Capito. Now, I, I've met him a few times. I found him very pleasant, actually fun and interesting. Great storyteller. Uh, but yes, several people that have worked with him, multiple people compared him to, to Wags Wagoner from Billions, uh, mostly for his ferocious uh, loyalty to, to Fink, that they are the, the yin and yang behind the rise of BlackRock, where, you know, Fink is the statesman, he's the visionary, he's got a great grip of every part of his business, but, you know, he's, he's the face of it. But in reality, BlackRock wouldn't be what it is without Rob Capito and his, you know, ferocious drive. Uh, and he is the guy that basically lets people go, essentially. So he's never quite that popular. Um, 
But yeah, I don't know how many sort of similarities are the other stories about Wags Wagner or Rob Capito, but he's definitely one of those, I think, underappreciated characters as power BlackRock and, and, you know, frankly, made a quite an impact in the investment industry as a whole. Yeah, so, so your book is not just the story of BlackRock. We need to, there are obviously Vanguard, which we'll come back to, State Street is a big player. Uh, but before we go there, uh, something else, ETFs. Now, when I was a young man in this industry, that didn't exist. And I think a lot of people are in the industry today just assume they have always existed. So we need to talk about where they came from. Just again, I'll read a little bit from your book as to where this started. Uh, and in my opinion, not that long ago, when you get to my uh, advanced years. At the end of the millennium, there were still just 36 ETFs in existence. Uh, despite the swift success of QQQ, which I'm sure you can tell us about, Bank of New York's NASDAQ tracking ETF launched at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Uh, they managed just $39 billion at the end of 1999, how the world changed. So what was it about an ETF that makes it different from the mutual fund? Just explain that briefly. And then who was the pioneer here? Who was the, who was the person or persons who suddenly took this obscure thing and turned it into a, a huge global product? Well, so the father of the ETF uh, is a guy called Nate Most. Uh, so he was a, a former physicist, uh, a submariner during World War II. He works on a- a- acoustic sonars and things like that. And he had a really nomadic career in business and finance. Essentially, he was not a success. He basically ambled from one company to the next that kept blowing up, not because of him, but just, you know, the vagaries of capitalism uh, until he ended up uh, the head as the head of the equity products division, uh, basically new developments, new products at the American stock exchange uh, in, in basically the nineties. And he was a brilliant man, but by this time he was old. He was in his late sixties when he was working at the Amex. He still had a brilliant mind, uh, though. And I think it's quite heartening to see that innovation isn't just a young person's game. You know, you can still invent something genuinely industry shattering at the age of 70, which is how old Nate Most was when he came up with the idea of the exchange traded fund, which is essentially a tradable index fund. I mean, he did this because the Amex was dying at the time. The Amex was struggling to compete against its big brother, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and upstarts like uh, NASDAQ, and it needed something to invigorate trading on it. And that's why he invented index funds. But as an exchange, they couldn't do it themselves. So Nate Most had to find a partner. He first went to Vanguard and, and Jack Bogle, because they obviously, by then, they'd actually grown to a pretty big size in retail index funds. Jack Bogle hated the idea of tradable index funds and sent a packing, even though they actually got on personally quite well. So Nate Most went to State Street and uh, the rest of history. They, many years later, because it was a very tortuous process getting this approved by the SEC, even though the SEC was at least in theory quite keen on a product similar to an ETF, um, they finally launched Spider. And like you say, it took a long time for ETFs to take off, which is one of the reasons why, frankly, State Street probably underinvested to begin with. And they are now, despite having pioneered the industry along with the Amex, uh, they are now a distant third in in the world of asset management or the index funds. So the third part of this is, uh, and has cropped up already in this conversation, is is Vanguard, uh, born out of an, an incredible dispute at Wellington Asset Management, uh, born out of great acrimony. 
a little bit maybe about that, but also the fee structure and how uh, Jack Bogle ended up with this very different fee structure and why he did it. And uh, I guess maybe maybe why more people haven't done it. But uh, that where, where did that fee structure come from? Why is it because of the the, the difficult birth the company had uh, coming out of the, the problems at Wellington? Well, as you hinted, they are unavoidably linked. Uh, Jack Bogle was a great salesman, a world-class salesman. That's not to denigrate that. That is an incredibly important skill, probably an essential skill for, for a CEO like that. Uh, but there was an element of him burnishing parts of the Vanguard legend later in life that weren't quite matched by the facts earlier in, in his career. And, you know, he was an active management zealot to begin with. He wrote his, his uh, undergrad degree on mutual funds when that was a, a, a burgeoning industry. It came to the attention of Walter Morgan, who was the head of the Wellington Funds. At the time, it was actually, frankly, only one fund. It was a balanced fund, basically a 60-40 fund, we'd call it probably now. Um, and Jack Bogle was hired as his assistant and rose through the ranks. And he was a hotshot. Uh, he even pseudonymously wrote an article lambasting the idea of index funds in the 1960s. So long before he was the, the passive convert, he thought this was a, a stupid idea. And everybody knew that active managers outperformed the indexes uh, in the long run. And here's a, a, an example to show how to do that. Uh, but then he essentially finally ascended the top job at Wellington in the middle of the go-go era uh, in the late 60s. So this was like this was the first dot-com bubble, really, uh, except it was IBM and Xerox and Kodak and companies like that. And balance funds like uh, Wellington's just weren't very sexy. Uh, so he decided they either need to start a growth fund or buy one. So essentially, he talked to many different people. He talked to Rob Lovelace, a capital group, about merging with them. But in the end, he found this very small group of exceptionally high-performing growth managers in Boston and merge Wellington with them. So they would take over management. They would get more board seats than him. And, and Walter Morgan would sell himself gradually out of the company. And initially, it worked well because they combined basically Wellington's world-class distribution at the time with the investment prowess and the performance of this hot Boston-based growth manager. But then when the go-go era ended, as they always do, um, acrimony ensued. And, you know, Bogle was a very different character from Thorndike, uh, Dora, and some of the other people of the Boston partners. And this just got exacerbated in the beer market in the early 70s. So eventually, you know, it was either them or him. And frankly, they outnumbered him. So they voted to sack him as CEO. And in a complete Hail Mary, he then appealed to the independent boards of the actual Wellington funds, because in the US, all funds have to have their own independent boards. And he asked them to either reinstate him or to basically demutualize, or demutualize and basically buy themselves out of Wellington. Uh, and gave them lots of different options. And in the end, the board said, yes, you know, we like Jack Bogle. We don't think he should be sacked, but we'll, essentially just set up an administrative company owned by the funds themselves that would do all the paperwork, all the admin stuff, the boring stuff. So Wellington would stay there, the management company, do all distribution and all investment management on behalf of the funds. And Vanguard, as it was given the grandiose name uh, by Bogle, would do all the paperwork. 
And the reason why Vanguard is to this day owned by its funds is because of this peculiar situation, that it was basically just a gift to Vogel, a way to let him stay the CEO of something and still basically cash his $100,000 salary at the time. Uh, and the reason why Vanguard started with index funds was not because Jack Bogle had shown a, a huge interest in it before, but because the divorce agreement with Wellington precluded Vanguard from doing investment management. And Bogle's rather po-faced presentation to the board was that, well, an index fund is unmanaged, and therefore it doesn't breach that divorce agreement. And lo and behold, bizarrely enough, the board said, yeah, sure, that's fine. That's okay. Wellington didn't fight it, but they thought, you know, index funds, that's never going to take off. So he was able to start what was called, you know, the first index investment trust and later became the Vanguard 500, which is now, you know, what, $500 billion in itself would be one of the world's biggest asset managers in the, even on the standalone basis. Right. Uh, and what, what I didn't know is even the name was a slight uh, sort of thumbing of the nose towards Wellington because the Vanguard was a ship of Nelson. Yes. Well, so uh, Vanguard was a ship of Nelson. Basically, Wellington was obviously founded by Walter Morgan, and he was the huge Napoleonic War history buff. And and Bogle, that rubbed off a little bit on Bogle. So Vanguard obviously was a good name anyway, and he was at the forefront, which is what he wanted to be. Uh, but he later on built a mural in the Vanguard uh, headquarters in, in Pennsylvania, where basically showed the Battle of the Nile. And it showed the Nelson's flagship, the Vanguard, firing on the French flagship, La Spartiale. But in the Vanguard mural, he changed the name of La Spartiale to La Fidelité as a nod to fidelity here, one of his other arch nemeses uh, over the years. And Ned Johnson, who had uh, rather rudely dismissed the idea that any American would ever accept being average by investing in an index fund. Uh, that's a very good point. It must have been quite a, a difficult marketing thing to tell Americans that they wanted to be average. I mean, that must have been quite a tricky thing to do. But but done, as you say, an incredible salesman. We need to speak a little bit about the implications and consequences of this incredible growth. And once again, I want to read from your from your book. Uh, if almost 8,000 ETFs sound like a lot, it pales next to the supernova explosion of financial indices. The Index Industry Association, a trade body of its biggest players, has counted nearly 3 million live indices being maintained by its members. In contrast, there are only about 41,000 public companies in the world. In reality, probably only three to 4,000 of those stocks are tradable. For index, for evidence that the index revolution is now eating itself, this is often offered up as Exhibit A. So you'll have discussed Exhibit A with lots of the contributors to your book. Uh, did you come to a conclusion about what this what this means, how long it can go on? Uh, it's a very big question, actually. But what, yeah. what were your thoughts, having spent a long time uh, researching this industry and, and that conundrum now that lies at the very heart of it? Well, I would say the proliferation of indices in itself is not something we need to worry about. It's an easy thing to make fun of because it sounds so comically silly. But there are, well, there are a lot more books in the world than there are letters in the alphabet. Uh, you can rejig things in many different ways. And I don't see that as a particularly a problem in itself. Many of these indices are essentially like the different currencies in the world. So the different currency flavors of the same index. There's a Sharia compliant, a Catholic compliant, an ESG compliant version of the S&P 500 and so on. And also there are millions of bonds out there. 
I mean, tens of millions of Q-tips. Um, but I think it is another symptom of the index revolution going away from essentially what you can see is its pure roots in that it is a cheap way of delivering a diversified, balanced portfolio of investments, securities to buyers, whether the pension plan or, or you and me. And I think that is a hugely valuable invention. And frankly, one of the most valuable inventions that the financial industry has come up with over the past hundred years. But we know as humans that we are very good at taking valuable inventions and overdoing them. And I think the proliferation of indices is just another example of how the innovation in that space has gone, I'd say a little bit amok, but that's probably even charitable. It has gone completely mad over the past, let's say, 10 years, especially with the advent of ETFs, which is a very flexible fund structure. So you can put anything into it, including active strategies. And some of these funds, I think, frankly, at best, are dangerous to the financial health of the people that buy them or trade them. Uh, at worst, I think some of them are actually dangerous to to financial markets and, and, and cause quite serious problems at times. Though I, I should always stress, which I don't do a good enough job of, these are the kind of the the leveraged, inverse, option-based, lots of silly ETFs out there. If you look at the big, where the money's going, it's still sort of 18, 90% is in plain, cheap, boring, beta portfolios, essentially. Buying the entire junk bond market, the entire S&P 500 or so on. Well, we have seen a couple of ETFs go to zero uh, yeah. and very and very quickly go to zero because they were more of the the, the leveraged yeah. uh, ones you were talking about. Uh, there, there's more to that than the uh, issue of what the, this whole industry now means. And Jack Bogle himself raised it. And I'm going to read something from your book, but it reminded me a lot, actually, of the parting words of President Eisenhower, his last speech before he left office, warning about the rise of the military-industrial complex. There seemed to be an echo here with with Bogle. But let me let me read this. Uh, in his twilight years, Bogle himself grew increasingly perturbed by the inevitable end result of the economics of scale in index, pointing out that if the trend towards an increasingly entrenched oligopoly continued, then just a handful of firms would eventually enjoy voting control over every single large listed U.S. company. And then in quotation marks is his words uh, not that many years ago, public policy cannot ignore this growing dominance and consider its impact on the financial markets, corporate governance and regulation. There will be major issues in the coming era. I do not believe that such concentration would serve the national interest. That's the bit that rang a bell to me with the military industrial complex. That's clear. This is clearly a different angle on that. But so where are we on this issue of concentration of power against the national interest, which is quite a statement? No, I hadn't really thought of the, the parallels to the, the military-industrial complex speech uh, that Eisenhower gave towards the end of his, his presidency. And I, actually, I think that's that's probably, that's a great parallel given, you know, Eisenhower was a general before he became the president and Bogle's role as the father of at least retail indexing. Uh, we have become far, I, I always used to argue that this was the fear, my biggest concern in that there are so many aspects to the rise of pass investing. Uh, and some, you know, I think are complete hogwash. Some I think are overdone, but, you know, bear watching. Uh, and I think this one was the one that people hadn't quite grappled with because it was the, the least tangible, right? 
you know, active managers complaining that index funds ruin markets. I mean, frankly, if you're an active manager, you're always going to blame central banks or passive investors or Citadel or somebody, right? When you do well, it's thanks to your own brilliance. If you do badly, it's always because of somebody else. Um, but I think the concentration issue just always gave me uh, the heebie-jeebies, as they say in the, in the US, because it's already very concentrated. And the economics of scale involved with indexing means that almost inevitably the big are just going to become bigger and bigger. And this isn't just a passive issue. It's just asset management in general. For example, now Fidelity has leapfrogged uh, State Street to be the third biggest asset management company in the world, despite State Street being bigger and passive. Uh, that said, Fidelity's growth is largely being powered by its own passive arm now called Geode. Um, but you can see a world where, frankly, people talk about the big three. My argument is actually we're looking at a dynamic duo here, that BlackRock and Vanguard are so titanically big and so much better at, frankly, eking out the benefits of scale that they're always going to be able to sell funds cheaper than everybody else. And the cost of beta, and sometimes even smart beta, to use that sort of malign term, is already at zero in some cases, or very close to it, or trending in that direction. And that is great for us as consumers of investment products, because frankly, even if you don't invest in index funds, asset management fees are coming down across the board. Um, but it does mean the big will just become bigger. And at some point, that, I think, makes me nervous because it, essentially they just pool corporate power, right? BlackRock as a company is far smaller than, you know, Apple. It makes far less money than Apple. Like these asset management companies aren't huge per se in industrial scale. But because they pool all the power that comes from shareholders around the world, they have immense influence even if, and I think this is crucial, they decide not to use it. Because if you have power, a decision not to exercise that power is also a decision with consequences. And we can see the push and pull on asset management companies as the recognition of their growing power has, has grown. Um, they get pushed and pulled in so many different directions. Uh, Already now, you know, BlackRock is very much in the crosshairs of people on the left and right that think it isn't doing enough on the climate crisis or doing too much, or it's not doing enough on social social inclusion and governance or doing too much. Uh, and I, my argument has been for a long time that this is the defining battle that the index funds especially um, face for the next decade or two. Uh, and I, so I, it's, it's this giant problem of fiduciary duty, which pervades the entire industry. But when you are as powerful as these index funds are, how do you exercise that fiduciary duty? And, and Jack Bogle's not with us anymore, but the elephant trap was set and BlackRock have wandered into the elephant trap. And it's difficult to see how they could have avoided it. But now they, have, they themselves have become politicized or the issue of BlackRock is politicized. And for people who are not reading the newspapers, uh, you, you will know that certain states, particularly Florida, is withdrawing money from uh, BlackRock funds because BlackRock are becoming more active in terms of uh, uh, social corporate uh, governance. Where does this go? I mean, does do these these politicization of these organizations by they're not not by themselves, but by 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 others taking a view on their actions, 
is this the end of the concentration of power that we end up breaking it up for? I mean, are we going to take this to a legislative level now and say this company is too powerful and something has to be done about it? Is this where this movement from that's begun in Florida is, is going to end? Well, I spoke to Larry Fink, as you'd expect quite a lot for this book. And you know, I've talked to people at BlackRock for many years. Uh, I was intrigued that even Larry, you know, on the record, as we say in the journalist world, raise the idea that, look, if people think this is such a big deal, I'll just break, break BlackRock up in two companies or three companies. You just have separate shareholder governance teams for each one. They operate when it comes to corporate governance as different firms. It imposes more costs. It's less efficient. But if people think this is a big deal, we can do that. But again, it's kind of then, you know, form over substance, right? Uh, but I don't really... And the reason why I think this is such a fascinating problem is because it's... It's kind of insoluble. If we want the benefits of scale in that cheap uh, investment products, that that comes with potentially other costs, right? There is no easy solution to this. Uh, I have to admit, like when I started writing this book, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I felt this was going to become a huge issue. It's become a big issue far quicker than I thought, though with some con- nuance. I think it's fascinating to see how much this has become a bigger deal in the US than in Europe. And not just because, obviously, generally in Europe, people tend to be a little bit more socially liberal, a little bit dreamy, uh, and like ESG, frankly, more than many Americans. I think the US is just such a uniquely, catastrophically polarized country at the moment, where every single facet of existence almost becomes just another front in the ongoing culture wars. And BlackRock, because it essentially did what was a purely smart commercial move and saying, look, we're very weak keen on ESG. We think this is important. You know, if the world burns up, that's not great for investment returns. So we're going to take this more seriously. Yes, I think, like you say, it kind of wandered into this for commercial reasons. And it has blown up in its face. Not because I think, frankly, many of these Republican senators and governors care that much. You know, frankly, it's a free market. If people don't want to invest with BlackRock, they just go somewhere else. That's fine. Uh, but because they see it's a very convenient bogeyman, and it certainly helps that Larry Fink is, you know, a rare Wall Street Democrat as well. So it just kind of, it's just a very convenient target for them at a time when people want to have convenient targets and politicize everything, including literally what burger shop you go to. Uh, so I, I think it's going to get, far worse for BlackRock before it gets better because a lot of the moves they have done, they are trying to, for example, they are giving all the institutional clients, like a big pension fund that maybe invests in BlackRock, they are now basically pushing that voting over to you or can do so if you want to devote your own shares because they only are an asset manager. They're not an asset owner. And in the UK, they're now piloting this scheme to give investors, individual investors in their index funds, the ability to vote their own shares. Uh, what, what strikes me about this is that uh, uh, everything in America does seem to be partisan, but maybe here's something that, that both sides are beginning to agree, to agree on. And that's why this is important from the Republican side. There is too much concentration of power. Now, they, they don't like it because it's being exercised in a way they don't like. But ultimately, at the core of it is they're also saying there is too much concentration of power. And if we go back in history, and we discussed this recently on this podcast with uh, Denise Heron, the author of the myth of capitalism, along with Jonathan Tepper. Mm. Uh, that didn't used to be a partisan issue. Uh, Eisenhower was very much against the concentration of power. And I don't just mean that speech, his uh, antitrust 
legislation and, and actions. And I, and I wonder if the Democrats and the Republicans coming from, as you say, completely polarized camps, or there's somewhere where they're beginning to cross over here, which is that some of these organizations in a, in a democratic society have become uh, too powerful. Is that likely to be, that's why I mentioned the, the, the issue of legislation. Uh, is this the one thing they're going to agree on? <laughs> Well, not uh, because their interpretation of things, they might agree on the broad issue that there is too much corporate power in too few hands. But when it comes to beyond that top level, uh, there is zero disagreement. And when you actually come to solutions, I suspect it will be as hopelessly paralyzed as they are on every other issue. Uh, I think it is been interesting. There is a, a migration in the understanding of like antitrust historically was when a big company was so powerful that it abused its position to squelch competitors and gouge consumers. So a lot of like what the FTC in, in the US and many other anti-competition or antitrust um, watchdogs, they look for market abuses. Like the way that these big firms are so big that they gouge consumers. And this, and I think this is what we're seeing in a world that is more technology driven, platform driven. This doesn't really hold up as much because these big companies can offer these services cheaper. So they're not necessarily squelching com uh, competitors because they're buying them or doing things like that, though that does happen. It's just that they are so big, they can offer their services cheaper and undercut everybody else. But we benefit from that as consumers. At what point does that become like the very tangible and quantifiable benefits of big companies and oligopolies or even quasi-monopolies become outweighed by uh, the concentration of power? I, I, I think I do not like the idea, and this is maybe me having lived in the US large time parts when I wrote this book. In the US especially, because of the paralyzed political system uh people look for different outlets to get their policy choices essentially uh, but essentially i don't think that private companies should be taking over public policy issues i think if, if guns are legal in the u.s and i don't think they should be that is an issue for the u.s legislative bodies and elected representatives not for blackrock and if, black, if a gun company is in the index, they should just hold that. And maybe they can offer you a flavor that excludes these things. But I don't think that is something they should get involved with. Same thing when it comes to environmental standards. Uh, because these are unquestionably highly contentious political issues. Maybe I wish they weren't, but they are. And given how big these companies are, that drags them into very touchy subjects. And can we break them up? I mean... We could. I mean, it's not actually that difficult, especially asset management companies. But I don't think it is at this stage where this is a we need to do this now issue. Uh, because, I mean, people forget that, frankly, many industries are are quite concentrated and, frankly, more far more concentrated than asset management. Asset management is unique because of its concentration of power, because of the, they basically consolidate and pool corporate voting power because they manage money on behalf of others. But, say, BlackRock is generously less than 10% of the entire investment industry. Now, that's huge, but it's still less than 10%. Most other industries in most countries are more are, are more concentrated than that. Um, but I think it's where we're heading rather than where we are now. Uh, it's been interesting to see the European Commission has started obliquely hinting that they're looking at this. The Federal Trade Commission in the US has also said that they're looking at this. 
I hope that over time, what will happen is the natural forces of capitalism um, come into play. Essentially, BlackRock or Vanguard will screw up or somebody else will do something better. For example, Fidelity, which was a laggard in index funds because it was an anathema to the whole ethos of Fidelity, is now an indexing superpower. Not a hyperpower like BlackRock and Vanguard, but, you know, they've doubled in size in just for four or five years. And a large chunk of that is passive investing. And they are the only fund that now, fund group that now offers a free index fund. They have undercut Vanguard and BlackRock on price. So maybe that's what I hope to see, that essentially more people take on BlackRock and Vanguard on their own terms and just outcompete them on price and service. And capitalism works as it should, essentially, without governments essentially coming and wielding a chainsaw. Well, if, if Capital Ideas by Bernstein was Chapter 1 and you were Chapter 2, I, we've no doubt that there is going to be a Chapter 3 because this is going to become a huge, huge story and, and has already become a political story, not just a business story. Uh, Robin, thanks for writing this book. I would say that if you haven't read it, then you don't really understand how finance works today. Uh, and it is interesting that it's a story that has been been undertold and now fully told and well told. And, and thank you for doing it. And thank you for joining us today. And as a reminder, it's trillions, how a band of Wall Street renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever, and they certainly did. Robin, thank you for joining us, and thank you very much. No, thanks so much for inviting me on. And I think everybody should read Capital Ideas as well, because it is a phenomenal book, as most of Peter Bernstein's books are. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com. Register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.